Hello and welcome back to Supreme Myths. I have been away for the summer and I am so pleased to be back. To be back. Um, and I am even more pleased to have my first guest today be Julian Mortensen, the um, James G. Phillips Professor of Law at the University of Michigan. Uh, he graduated from Harvard College, Stanford Law School, clerked for Justice Souter, uh, worked for Wilmer Hale, and has been very active in litigating progressive causes. He's kind of a uh, I follow him on, he's a great Twitter follow when he's on it, because he's very funny, uh, but I really admire the litigation work that he's done, so I want to welcome um, Julian to Supreme X. It is a great pleasure to be here. Um, I really enjoy your commentary, both formal, scholarly, and <laughs> informal, public-facing, whether on Twitter or otherwise. So the cool. chance to um, have uh, you know another conversation, this time with video, is, um, <laughs> is, is a real privilege. Thank you for having me on. Well, I'm really glad you're here. Um, so we're going to eventually talk about the, the oceans of torrents you caused with your colleague, um, a long article about the delegation. I call the delegation doctrine, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But before we do, so you clerked for Justice Souter, and I have publicly said many times he is my favorite Supreme Court justice, certainly of my lifetime. So I have some questions about Justice Souter, if that's okay. What was he like to clerk for? A gem. Yeah. One of the best bosses that I've ever had. Um, I mean, I actually feel much that way about both of my um, clerkship bosses, uh, Judge Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit and Justice Souter on the Supreme Court. Justice Souter was just a combination of uh, intellectually rigorous and demanding of himself of the highest levels of engagement, um, but like really, and not just saying that. Right. On the one hand, and on the other hand, just an immensely humane, warm, um, funny, thoughtful person who was a full person, not just um, not just uh, an achievement robot. I, I really, I really just loved working for him. Achievement robot is a spectacular <laughs> turn of phrase. That's why everybody needs to follow Julian on Twitter because he turns those <laughs> phrases all the time. Um, you, okay, so you said something that triggered me in a positive way. So I'm going to have to. You said he was humane and warm and decent, and I think you said decent, but you said humane and warm. Here's the thing. I think those are incredibly important qualities for any judge, traffic court, trial court, court of appeals, and most importantly, Supreme Court justices. Being a decent person should be a prerequisite for that job. It clearly is not. One example outside of our time period, Justice Douglas was a war hero, but everyone I've ever talked to about him said he was one of the and a progressive, you and I would admire his politics and all that, um, but just one of the worst people, apparently, in person. Why do you think we don't that that trait of being a decent, good person is never talked about when it comes to confirmation hearings and that kind of thing? Why not? Golly, um, I mean, I suspect I share with you certain reasons for thinking it's important, other than. I don't want to say merely or other than only the idea of having role models and yeah. like positions, which I do think is important. I think there's reasons to do with what that cast of mind tends to draw out of people in their professional capacity. Why isn't it focused on more in judicial nominations? I mean, it emerges, you know, affectionate letters from groups of former clerks is sort of a standard trope these days of what nominations look like. Or but softball I agree with you. It's not, it's not the 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, but I, I agree with you. That it's not it's not a focus of the case that's made in the affirmative. And I guess, well, maybe with some very big uh, exceptions, it's not typically a focus of the case against. And part of the story has to be because of how, um, I mean, I say these things, uh, I don't necessarily, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not new in saying them, you know that, you've been saying them, but like the polarization and the intense yeah. agenda-driven nature of the nominations and the programmatic nature of how we expect justices to behave, um, descriptively and I think increasingly norm normatively, like the output from what they yield when they're on the bench and will they be reliable and for that matter, from you know the, uh, the last administration's perspective, can we guarantee there'll be no more suitors, right. Um, right? The whole idea that the most important thing is to vet ideologically and to tick off the boxes to know that this person's gonna do the thing that we're putting him or her there for. Um, and I, you know, there's more reflections there to do with like how one gets to be so successful that one yes. attracts the kind of attention yes. and and, yes. and and track record that yes. puts one in yes. position to compete for those kind of things. And is that kind of personality and tendency of mind the right. best one to have if you want to be a Supreme Court justice one day? Yes. So it's kind of different things coming together, I think. I mean, what, what, do, you, what, what, what do you think? What's, well, your, what's your take? I, I think all of that is true. I also think there is this illusion that we still want to maintain that, uh, you know, for example, at some point in the last 25 years, Empathy was a bad thing for judges to have. And then Obama kind of tried, tried to rehabilitate that. There is some idea that, and this is where Souter comes in, there is some, this is, there's some idea that, no, look at the text, look at the history, look at the precedent, make your decision. Your values don't matter. So if you're a good guy, a bad guy, a good woman, a bad woman, it doesn't matter. The law is the law. You'll find it. And, of course, my views on that are well known. You know, that's such a pernicious view of it. And I'm sorry, I didn't know we were going to take this turn, but it does really, the contrast between Souter and Scalia, strikes me as can be seen in this episode when it, when everyone famously knows that Scalia, I think, compared homosexual conduct to murder in his dissent in Lawrence versus Texas. I, I, I read it that way. But even if one doesn't read it that way, at Princeton a few years later, an openly gay Princeton student said to Justice Scalia in person, why would you compare homosexual conduct to murder? And he was obviously hurt and all that. And a, a, a real person with real feelings and real empathy would say, I'm sorry I insulted you. It wasn't what I meant to do. I was making a form of argument. No offense. And I'm, I'm sorry if you... That's not what Scalia did. He said, oh, get over it. It's a form of argument. I don't apologize for what I say. To a gay student who, who I'm sure took a lot of nerve to stand up and make that statement. That's not how that should be handled. And I think that reflects a lot on Scalia. And there's no chance, I'm assuming you'll agree with this, Souter would handle a similar... He would have empathy for that student, even if he was really conservative. I mean, even if it was on the other side, he'd have empathy, right? Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't uh, I, I never had a chance to get to know Justice Scalia very well. Yeah. Um, and so I don't that I have well formulated views on what he's like in different contexts other than public facing ones. But I'd agree that the scenario you describe is um, is unfortunate in, yeah. in, in its yeah. lack of. Yeah empathy in the context that you describe. And I also think that in some respects, I don't think this is too much of a leap, in some respects, like the decency and care and um, sort of personal warmth of Justice Souter is part of what made him a humble judge 
working step by step, not seeking to draw giant sweeping conclusions, not seeking to swashbuckle through all opposition, but rather to engage it sincerely and and, and receive it in in the spirit of someone who might be mistaken. Um, I think all of that is is in addition to kind of personal characteristics. Yes. Pretty um, important yeah. in terms of professional characteristics. My friend Eric Berger at the University of Nebraska, who's an excellent, excellent law professor, has written a lot about why the justices have to pretend everything is cut and dry and why they have to think pretend everything is easy and you know, my, the opponent's arguments are all wrong and here's why, as opposed to recognizing these are hard cases with people of good faith can differ. I, I thought Souter was so good at recognizing and not using the rhetoric that, that not just Scalia either. You know, when Roberts or Alito or Kagan or Sotomayor write decisions, they often write them in ways like this is the only way this case could possibly come out. I don't think I've ever read a pseudo opinion that that had that tone to it, other than maybe his dissent in Seminole Tribe, which is that was great. But. <laughs> that one, that one ticked him off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know Ernie Young, I think, was somehow involved in all that, and Ernie might have been involved a little bit. Yes. <laughs> um, all right, a couple more things about Souter, and then we'll we'll head off. Um, was there ever a time, and, and not, you don't have to mention the case, but was there ever a time when you went to him and said? I think we're on the wrong path here, or you know, you're planning on voting this way, but I'm not sure. Any kind of dynamic like that? I mean, we had free-flowing conversation about every single case that I ever worked on, and it always started with a very short memo, right. and um, was the conversation that followed from that memo was based on him, you know, if it had been oil, he would have been burning it. Midnight oil um, in his office, like one of the only windows that was on in the entire Supreme Court building, going through briefs, reading the old cases. And then his law clerks would bring to him for each case in the sitting. Usually it had to be a two-page memo, a strict limit. And the point was nice. to sort of discipline yourself to focus on, like, what are the big moving parts here? What do we, what do we really have to dig into? And, I mean... Geez, I remember thinking of those as exhilarating precisely because he was so open to taking what I had to say seriously. I mean, I, you know, I, I knew I was reasonably good at law, but I, <laughs> I didn't think I was like wandering into the Supreme Court to teach the justices anything. And so to have somebody who I respected, especially as the year went on so profoundly, um, uh, engage me as somebody whose perspective was worth listening to and whose cautions or whose observations might capture something that he hadn't seen. I mean, I sort of think of it as sort of the epitome of, of, a, of, a, of a, humble, uh, a humble approach to really hard problems. I might have missed something. Tell me more about why you're saying X or Y or Z. Yeah. So that was very much part of his. Um, I, 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 wish, his. I, wish, I wish the justices sooner didn't need to, but everyone since, I wish they would read Eric's work because he really makes a strong case that the opinions – the, the, the debates and the arguments would be much better at a lower rhetorical level. And I think Justice Souter understood that from my outside perspective. And, and that's such a wonderful thing. Um, one more question about, not Souter, but Supreme Court clerkships. Um, so for those non-law professor, non-lawyers listening to this, if there are any, um, I have some reason to believe there are, um, you come out of a Supreme Court clerkship, and it really doesn't matter where you went. I mean, to get a Supreme Court clerkship, you normally have to go to a top 10 school or whatever, but it doesn't matter. Whatever background you had beforehand, if you come out of that, at this moment in time, I think New York firms are paying bonuses of, what, $300,000, $400,000, some ridiculous 
Okay, it's a huge amount of money, whatever it is. A lot of money. A lot of money. And also, this has changed since in my 30 years. 30 years ago, academic jobs were a piece of cake for any Supreme Court clerk and probably at a top 20 school. I'm not sure that's true anymore, but one will get an academic job at a decent school if one's a Supreme Court clerk, probably. Um, how valuable an experience was it, A, to your career, and two, do you think New York firms are getting what they buy, which is 300000 400000 I mean, they're really paying a lot of money for these folks. And if you don't want to talk about it, I understand that too, but I'm just curious. Uh, gosh, I mean, there's this sort of descriptive instrumental effect it had on my career, which was immense. Uh, my friend group, my close friend group from the year I clerked talked about the Supreme Court clerkship purely instrumentally as like a jetpack. Mm -hmm. And it had only a limited amount of fuel. <laughs> and so you couldn't trade on it at some point after you left. You would have had to do done other things in the meantime. But there's no question that it opened all kinds of doors, both in terms of jobs that were accessible to me. And then also and when I when I um, at, the, at the jobs that I went to. The, the sort of things that I was assigned to, or the people I would work with, there's just no question about that. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a rough signal, probably a noisy signal, but it's a signal um, that is very easy to pick up on, where you have just you know oceans of people who want to work with the person, or go to the place, or or what have you. Yeah. So there's descriptively, like it was one of the most um, being offered the job by 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 Justice Souter was one of the luckiest things that ever happened to be, without a shadow of a doubt. In terms of the training, I, I think of it as. Um, uh, uh, just a very, very intense version of a high-level apprenticeship combined with a constant, never-ending, um, but practical-focused graduate seminar in law at all times. And not just, I should emphasize, with the boss, but with, uh, you know, a, 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 a peer group that was, you know, maybe not uniformly to a person uh, amazing, but boy, it was pretty close. Yeah. There was a lot of really great people there. And I was really lucky to be there in a year, which notwithstanding the real divisions, I mean, really sort of angry divisions that um, emerged substantively over a range of cases, very high profile cases, we all pretty much, the clerks all pretty much got along and did socialize together and, you know, hear other, other, other years about, um, you know, the conservative happy hour and the liberal, and that's just like kind of weird to process what that would even be like. And the result of that from a professional perspective was just always talking, always talking, always talking, always talking, and then translating ideas into what a rule would look like that would be, you know, uh, administrable over time or, you know, translating claims into like, you know, limit testing hypotheticals everywhere along the way. It's just a very it's an intellectually vibrant place to be both in chambers and and really truly uh, in the sort of the you know the, the horizontal clerk relationship certainly in my year and so both of those things I think um, unquestionably improved me as a as a thinker how could they how could they not yeah um, all right yeah. well I appreciate all that I, the, my last word on this is the cry of no more suitors is exactly what's wrong with this country and the United States Supreme Court because what we need are nine suitors or whites or you know. We need nine moderates on the court. That's what we need. That's my opinion. And, and um, no more suitors is like the anti-call as far, as far as I'm concerned. But I, I understand the political what's going on there. Okay. Um, so you and your colleague Nicholas Bagley wrote a 100-page article. Or how long was it? It was really long. We got it under a hundred, I think, Eric. Okay. I'm not, I think I think we got it under there. Okay, squeak by, by, by a whisker or two, maybe a couple of whiskers under a hundred. Is is two a half to two thirds of a book a fair characterization of that article? I think it is. Uh, <laughs> it's long. Okay. It's a lot is of it? words. It, uh, it, it was. Um, 
It's called Delegation at the Founding. It's a fan- Delegation at the Founding. It is a fantastic, fantastic piece. I will admit you have to be a little wonky, you know, a little interested to read all 100 pages of it. Of course, I am, so that was no problem for me. Um, but, it, but it's a really important piece of work. It's going to be cited forever. Um, so let's, let's give um, the listeners kind of a rough overview of what people used to call the non-delegation doctrine, but I want the world to change it to the delegation doctrine. I want you to start that because you have much more influence than I do. Um, and I want you to start doing it all the time. But what is ah. the traditional non-delegation doctrine? And then we'll talk about why I think it should be the delegation doctrine. The answer to your question, as you well know, is complicated because there is no traditional non-delegation doctrine (laughs) at any point in American history except for that one famous year. And so uh, it is famous for being taught as a doctrine that doesn't really exist. And then the question is, should we spend a day on the non-delegation doctrine when, like, it doesn't really exist? And the answer might be no in con law, but yes in admin. In any event, very big picture, the idea is that the Constitution allocates – as a formal matter, three categories of government power, legislative powers, the executive power, and the judicial power, among – and among, not actually all a unitary way for what it's worth, but among three among three branches. And that because of that allocation and because of the dangers of the concentration of power that were – that was sort of the, the whole uh, impetus behind embracing the separation of powers, it would undo the scheme – If you delegate – if – let me be more specific. If, for example, the legislature, the Congress, delegates too much authority to somebody else to make decisions with, right? Um, If the day after Congress opens shop, Congress enacts one statute that says, henceforth – the president is off to two two, two two section statute section one. The president is authorized to promulgate rules of the force of law on any topic within the jurisdiction, <laughs> you know, subject matter jurisdiction of the right. United States government. Uh, 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 section two: any violation of any regulation imposed by section one is punishable by uh, a term of years uh, that can be set by the president. Right. So you hand over all of the regulatory authority to the president and walk away. Like what you've ended up with is is. I mean, frankly, a a concentration of power that vastly exceeds anything really that any king of England ever could have hoped for, but certainly the king of England in the 18th century. And so long story short, when you get modern agencies that have broad delegations from Congress to regulate particulate emissions, quote, in the public interest, the worry is on the part of those who advocate it that it's an instance of Congress – giving away too much of its power and that that is in violation of a non-delegation principle. And you and I can and I'm sure will problematize that claim six ways to Sunday. But that's, I think, the basic claim. So I think maybe um, a non-lawyer or non-law professor might ask, but if Congress wants to give away its power, what's the problem? I mean, not forgetting, forgetting constitutional norms. Is there a problem? What are the problems, if any, with Congress deciding, you know what, this is too hard for us or too politically controversial for us, we're going to delegate it to the executive branch. I just want to say for the record that I made a law when I was at the Department of Justice. Michael Paulson and I wrote a law, a professor at St. Thomas Law School, um, that was eventually struck down by a judge, but then the Court of Appeals reinstated it. No one voted for me. No one knew who I was. I made a law. So the layperson may say, why is Siegel making a law? I didn't vote for him. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a complex of of, of perspectives on which it's a problem. From a policy perspective, um, the side of idea of accountability that you just um, gestured towards is at the heart of it. I mean, if we don't have control over the rules that govern us through the elections of our elected representatives in the, you know, in the most populous, or not the most populous, but the most representative assembly, uh, the, the House of Representatives in the government and the Senate, then we no longer are in a meaningful sense working through the rule of law in um, setting the terms of like how we're going to coexist as a society. So there's sort of a legitimacy slash accountability problem if if Eric is drafting things that become big problem blog. big problem there really big problem <laughs> um, so, so there's there, there's that piece of it um, and I guess connected to that is the idea that there's some appeal especially if the Congress has some reason to think that the agency that the president will run will be sympathetic to its values there's some appeal to Congress from walking away from and you see this all the time quote, the hard choices, right? That like the hard choices that require goring maybe many people's oxen, not just one person's ox, those those have to be made through um, through our elected representatives and through that process, which the Constitution calls law and doing it some other way than the enactment of law through bicameralism and presentment is, you know, in the caricatured version, governance by diktat. But of course, all the delegations that you and I would talk about as being maybe hard issues were originally done through Article One, Section Seven, bicameral. I want to make this clear for the for the listeners. No one, I don't think. I, I mean, you, you and I are both people who think that judicial review over this doctrine should be very limited. Um, but that's assuming the original law was passed under Article One, Section Seven. Then it gives authority to somebody else. I assume you agree with this me. This is actually crucial. No, I, sorry, I, go ahead. I assume you agree with me that that first law has to go through bicameralism and present. This is a crucial distinction, and it's behind one of the biggest, I'll call it misunderstandings, in the argument about how to think about delegation. There are those involved in the debates who say, quintessential challenge against the Stuart kings carrying through to the 18th century uh, English-British uh, crown was that they claimed the right to make laws for themselves, and you can trace all across this whole period, like, vituperative, <laughs> raging screeds, um, uh, uh, you know, really savaging um, the British kings and really especially the Stuarts for arrogating lawmaking authority to themselves. And the crucial distinction, and it's not a technical distinction, it's everything, is that they were not, the instances referenced, were not ones in which they were relying on a statute by which parliament had said, hey, here's a problem, go take care of it. Right. They were saying, you know what? We get to just make you give us money. We get to just set the rules about um, ports. We just get to do the following set of things, regardless of whether parliament even meets. And that is just so completely categorically different right. from what we talk about now as delegation, as non-delegation, um, where the question is, by definition, it is, it is a necessary piece of the way this emerges, that the legislature have enacted a statute that has delegated its authority. Otherwise, you're talking about actual irrigation of power. But all the stuff about the king lawmaking, that had nothing to do with nothing to do with delegated power in the discourse that gave rise to um, uh, sort of, you know, the, the 18th century American re revolutionary movement. I'm going to get into history in a second. But everything you just said, by the way, I think Justice Scalia, for those people out there who 
hate me and like him, and there are those people who follow me and do that. Um, he said all of that in a case called Clinton versus New York, or New York versus Clinton. I think it was when it was. But he, the, the court struck down the line item veto, and in an incredibly formalist opinion, ironically, by Justice Stevens. And Scalia dissents, I think, said pretty much what you just said. The original law went through Article One, Section 7. That takes away the delegation doctrine. I mean, that, that we're done now. Everything else is something else. Um, and I take it, you, I agree with that, and I think you agree with that, right? And it's worth, I definitely, I definitely agree with it, and it's worth extending the point um, to say that the author of the classic modern opinion, nine, like effectively 9-0, um, uh, saying, yeah, the delegation doctrine, the non-delegation doctrine um, really doesn't have any bite or teeth was Justice Scalia. Right. He wrote the decision that said that there's not judicially administrable right. – he didn't use these words, but it's unmistakably the essence of the holding. There's not a role for the judiciary to demand specificity in these delegations. So not only did he have the history right on this one, he had um, – <laughs> He had the he had the bottom line conclusion right about the non delegation doctrine from an originalist perspective, and, and so when you were, when you went through um, kind of the, the general contours of the doctrine a few minutes ago, can we agree? Can we agree that were we in Congress, we might have strong opinions and strong debates about how much to delegate, when to delegate, and who to delegate to? Because we do have this problem of independent agencies. We'll talk about it at the end, maybe, but. That doesn't mean judges should do that. Those are two different questions to me. And, they, and I, I hope and I assume they're two different questions to you. Oh, for sure. And one of the I mean, we take pleasure in it because we're <laughs> very good friends. One, one of the one of the one of the fun parts about this project um, over a long arc of time is that um, this delegation paper is that Nick Bagley, my co-author and colleague, is way more open to broad delegations than I am, has way less hesitation about consolidation of administrative power as a policy matter right. than I do. But like we both agree, coming back to your point, that these are questions that are meant to be hashed out by the political process. They sure as heck aren't meant to be hashed out by, I mean, best case nine, quite possibly five or I guess six now, judges who actually don't have the faintest idea how government really works. Hagen's just savage on that. And I mean, it's a different set of doctrines, but yeah. in the Salem law, Hagen's dissent is savage on just how clearly the majority doesn't understand the actual operation of the influence points in governance. And so it's a bad idea from a system design perspective to let the judges decide what the political structure should look like. So one of the remarkable things about your article uh, with Nick, um, Delegation at the Founding, is that when I, when I first printed it out, and I had to come to work to print it out because then I mentioned it's 100, 100 pages. Um, when, I, when I came to work to print that out and I sat there and I read it, I had all these conflicting feelings, and, 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 and I think you'll understand pretty quickly where I'm getting at. Your history is so good. It's just so good. And I think you absolutely make an historical case, which I'll let you make in summary in a second, that this doctrine at the founding is nothing like what modern day, I think mostly conservatives, wanted to be today. They haven't gotten there yet, but they're pushing to get it there. Um, and my conflict about that, which we'll get into after you describe the history, is I'm reading this and I'm reading this and I respect you and Nick so much. Nick and I ran into each other about Obamacare over the years and King versus Burwell and all kinds of things. Um, I respect you guys so much. And there's a part of me that wanted to scream, use your talents for something that will convince a judge because this, even, this will not convince a judge because it's not policy, it's history. Does that make sense? And did any of that occur to you? 
Uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. I think actually one funny way in which I have, I'm going to psychologize. I haven't quite thought about it this way before, but you introduced me by mentioning some of the litigation that I've done, uh, including after getting into academia. I think one of the ways at a psychological level that I think about this is like when I'm litigating, I'm litigating and I do litigate. And when I'm not litigating, I'm freed a little bit from needing to be programmatic about um, some long arc goal in the course of research that, of course, I'm not saying that folks, most folks, many folks work backwards from the conclusion of the research that they're doing. But in any event, yes, at some level, um, I think I feel so so firmly convinced that originalism is a deeply perverse, let's say that, I a deeply perverse this, this, this way is to called think a matter about of This is called a matter of faith. <laughs> Uh, um, uh, uh, basis for how to interpret, how to do law, how to do law in a constitutional democracy that's supposed to be in service of the living, not of the dead, right? Like, uh, it's so problematic that um, by working within that rubric, you're sort of legitimating it. Endorsing it. You know, all this goes back to this much longer arc project that I've been involved with, um, that I've been pushing on with uh, presidential power more generally Mm -hmm. and the essence of the executive power in the 18th century. I just have come to find it so fascinating a set of historical questions in immersion, immer, immersing one, immersing, immersing oneself in like the thick of the debates of the past, not at the thinnest little scoop level, but like really getting all the way in and reading all the stuff and understanding all the wrinkles. It's just such an interesting and fascinating set of puzzles. And I just love the past that like, it's a pretty great way to spend your, your working hours. And, um, and so I don't know. I just, I guess I just disentangle those two things yeah. in my own mind. And, that, and, that, and that, I think that's fair. I want the record to reflect you called originalism perverse, not me. <laughs> I want the record to reflect that very clearly. All right. We're so, going to say all kinds of things on the show, Eric. It's going to be, it's, it's gonna be yeah, it's my ruin. That sentence, all kinds of things on this show, is one that I never thought would ever be uttered to me or about me or in any way, shape, or form. And I have all kinds of trepidation about that. But leaving that aside. All right. So, so let's start here on this issue. If someone said, give me the two best examples, if there are two examples, from the founding era that hurt your argument, that that don't support your argument, because you do a lot of um, disentangling in that piece. Is that, I want to ask that question first. Is that a fair question to ask? Give, give me the strongest argument that someone could make, you know, quickly in a nutshell, against your thesis. I think the best argument against the thesis is at the end of the day, like a methodological one, but not a historical methodological one, but rather a jurisprudential modes of interpretation yeah. argument. Um, and we'll come back to this, but I cannot say it. By any conventional standard of the originalism that at least I was raised on in the 90s in the sense of learning about it as a, as a young lawyer, it's, it's, it's laughably not close, right? The demand for... Uh, Originalism is conceived of, at least in many ways, maybe not thoroughly down to the nth degree, but in many ways, as one piece of a minimalist and deferential judicial agenda that cuts down on, like, you know, wild-eyed Warren Court rights finding. No, that's not how you do it. What you do is look for evidence at the relevant founding whenever the constitutional text was written, that this kind of practice was absolutely definitely prohibited by um, the, the, the the instruments that they adopted. Otherwise, it's up to the political process. Like, that move is is in all these cases, as, you know, typically written by Scalia, sometimes increasingly in the 90s went on by, by Thomas. And... Um, Applying what I think of as like the obviously, the obviously uh, 
consistent over time, originalist approach to what the requirement is to check the democratic process, it's not even close. It's not, there, there's not, there, there's not. There's like a couple things where a couple of people say something that could maybe be, and you weigh that against like mountains of evidence that okay. like there okay. was no such thing. So, I don't want to go on too long about how great, great a job we did. Here's why I think the best, the best argument is, is that Julian, you've misconceived the limits of originalism. What you're talking about is a particular form of originalism that was espoused by whatever you want to call them, first generation, maybe second generation originalists, that was often, definitely not always, as you pointed out in your your powerful critiques of Justice Scalia and his professional rule, um, but, but not always consistent over all the cases, but that was um, was, I don't want to say meant, I want to be careful about what I'm saying, was understood in its application as producing a mostly open field for the states and federal government to act. And can you point to exceptions? You darn sure you can. But the operation over time was like, unless you can show me this thing is definitely not allowed, and here's the standards you have to show, then 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 the, the political process can, can decide it. But that's not the only way you could think about this. I actually think that once you embrace a more open-ended, values-driven, um, uh, like, you know, they, they talk about the sense reference Distinction. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like hate the, that. The, Chris Green and I had a whole debate in Chicago Law Review on that. I, I, I hate it. But go ahead. You, you guys going back and forth. I, I love that stuff. But like, like the, the idea of the sense being capacious um, or more capacious that we might think and capable of application to a much broader range of um, restrictive outcomes. You know, I, I kind of get it. Me too. Yeah, I, I sit down and think about. Like powers have been separated. Surely it can't be that a feckless Congress or, you know, an enthrall Congress could turn around the next day and cancel the separation of powers that the Constitution just made. Surely that can't be right from a functional perspective, from an organic perspective, from a living constitutional perspective. I get all those arguments, actually. I don't agree with them, but I get them. Right. But even from an originalist perspective, if I'm willing to reason from – and nowadays they always talk about structure is what they say – but if I'm willing to reason in a very aggressive way from abstract structural principles down to concrete limitations on what seems to me sitting here as a judge or as a scholar to best serve those structural principles, yeah, I'm I, like delegation is not always the best thing in the world. And it is a good thing for powers to be separated. And it probably is right that at some level you're subverting the overall design past some point of consolidation of authority and administrative agencies and – and so the more you you not to jump around from doctrine to doctrine, but the more that you gravitate away from a Glucksbergian approach to deriving legal limitations from the past. Show me something specific. Show me they did it. Show me they did it in a bunch. Yes. And towards a Lawrence version of and I think the Lawrence original is, is not is unpersuasive. I don't need for it to be persuasive to agree with the outcome. But like the Lawrence version, Lawrence and Bergefell version of justice. That Justice Kennedy's writing to the extent that he engages in, in some light, little light trees and a little light originalism. That's uh, much more like reasoning from high level values, gesturing to the lack of prohibition of, of, of certain activities that because they weren't prohibited are therefore protected. The more you're willing to like wander around in this gauzy space where you start with values and you draw the firm conclusions that seem the best to you under the circumstances, the more I kind of I get it. I, it makes me crazy because I think it's so democratically illegitimate. And so if you think about the conservative movement as one big entity, which of course it isn't, so profoundly, dispiritingly hypocritical. Yeah. But I get the move. I, I want to mention- Sorry, I went, on, I went on too long. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I, want, I want you- uh, No, actually, you, you, you nailed the originalism point and the delegation point in the same 
monologues. That was great. But I want to <laughs> get to the hypocrisy for a moment because I have Twitter followers and I get notes from people who take these two positions simultaneously. Originalism is the predominant method of constitutional interpretation that we should have. And we should have a robust, I'm going to call it non-delegation doctrine, but I, you know, a robust check on delegation by judges. And your paper proves yep. beyond any doubt that you can't have both of those things. <laughs> I think that's right, unless what you're doing in an originalist frame is embracing abstract reasoning so firmly that originalism no longer provides well, any kind of serious. And of course, that's the last 10 years of my life. I mean, I think the, the, the new originalism of the 1990s, and I've written this, I forget what I've done. Thomas Smith, uh, uh, Colby at, at George Washington, and Peter Smith at George Washington have written like eight articles on how new originalism is just living constitutionalism. And they've done it. So, I, just, I just, you know, I basically cut and pasted and gave them attribution to my book because they did it so well. Um, right. If you start with if you start from general reasoning, we can get to a lot of places. But originalists are the ones who claim we shouldn't do that. <laughs> and that irony. All right. Can you give um, I want I'm, I'm going to ask for two things. Um, one. Oh, yeah, sorry, let, 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 just step back for yeah. one second. Just to like for just for avoidance of doubt for anybody listening. Yeah. If the question is whether there was something even vaguely recognizable as a doctrine, call it a principle, a non-delegation principle. Yeah. Did that exist at the founding? The answer is definitely unequivocally no. <laughs> it have a name. It wasn't invoked in thousands and thousands of a situation where it obviously applied and which were otherwise objected to on other grounds. So there was ample political motivation to do so. It doesn't appear anywhere until... That's a bit of an exaggeration. There are expressions of skepticism from stray commentators that you can pick out if you're just looking for the stuff that might be shaped into some gestures towards a dot. But like, it simply is not a move that is made ever <laughs> during framing, during ratification, and during the first um, during the first uh, during the first Congress. And it's an act of political entrepreneurialism, of constitutional entrepreneurialism by Madison to say, look, if I reason from first principles about the separation of powers, like, I kind of think that there should be a limit on how much you can delegate and looks around and everybody else starts saying, not everybody else, but the people who want to go along with him say, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty convincing. And then, you know, by the late 90s, it's a move that is recognizable. It's still not the winning doctrine. It still is rejected, like every time it's invoked, but it becomes a recognizable move. It's like a thing you can point to and say, oh, yeah, that principle, there is no principle at all, yeah, in any meaningful way, yeah. um, until the late nineties. And even if there was a principle, you have so many examples in your article slash book, mini book, um, that show, show there were massive delegates. People think the administrative state started in nineteen thirty six. Um, I actually would love someday for you to carve out your article, and and I think it would be a great learning tool in a condensed version for undergraduates who think or are taught in, in political science courses and history courses that, that the, the administrative state started in 1936 or 1932. Not true, right? Just not true. 
No, not true. And of course, we're building, or certainly Sympatico with on uh, work by lots of other folks. I mean, you know, Jerry Mashaw has yeah. some, uh, yeah. you know, seminal work on on the question of the roots of the administrative state. My colleague um, uh, Bill Novak uh, works not quite so far back, at least not in his published work yet. But um, I agree that these. It's an important myth that. Um, now we're talking my alley myths. Yes, go. Extreme myths. <laughs> um, it's, an, it's an important myth that that um, becomes part of the folklore of the Constitution, and therefore, to some extent, becomes part of our constitutional values, even if it misrepresents history, where we came from. Yeah. So, let me throw the hardest argument I can conceive of to challenge your position, and then I want to talk about the CDC moratorium in that case, because that's in the news, and we should talk about that. That happened last week. Um, so I think if I wanted to argue for a judicially enforceable, robust delegation doctrine, I refuse to call it non-delegation, delegation doctrine, I would go about it like this. Although there, were, there was an administrative state prior to 1932 and prior to the New Deal, and there were agencies doing all kinds of things that, that suggest an originalist analysis doesn't get us there, the world did change in a significant way with the New Deal. And federal power was increased exponentially. Uh, Bruce Ackerman of Yale Law School, I don't know if he even still has this position, but he certainly took the position once that the New Deal revolution was actually a functional constitutional amendment. Um, you know, the, the world really changed dramatically. And I agree with that. The world changed dramatically. Once that happened, then judges have to go along. Judges can't take the 1917 world or the 1857 world or the 1803 world Congress has to take, I mean, the courts have to take the post-1936 world. And in a world where we have a, I'll call a um, kind of Justice Souter-like, siegel light like uh, acknowledgement that values and judgments matter, that text and history can't get us there, maybe we went too far in 1936, and maybe we should cut it back as a policy matter, because it is... What it leads to are, for example, independent agencies that the Roberts Court is cutting back on, but which really have no place in the Constitution. So the Federal Communications Commission gets to regulate the airwaves, quote, in the public interest. That's, that delegation is it's kind of, even to me, a crazy, I wouldn't rule unconstitutional, but it's a crazy delegation. Um, right. How do you respond to that argument, that, that the world changed and judges should, judges should, go, should have to deal with the world that exists today? Yeah. I'm saying devil's advocate, by the way. No, no, I completely understand. I mean, you can be more than devil's advocate. You're even allowed just to, to argue for the non-delegation doctrine, like rip off your mask. And, I'm not doing um, that. I'm and, not doing that. <laughs> um, I, I don't want to be pat about this, and I want to kind of try to be generous to the argument. But for me, and not just in like argumentative mode, but like actually what I think, everything you're saying is an argument a fortiori for judicial deference. Yes, the world's more complicated. Yes, things are like beyond, like vastly beyond the regulatory um, ken or or imaginings of of um, you know uh, an American people in an early industrial, mostly agrarian era. That's all true, um, and because it's so much more complicated, and because there's so many more demands on government to run a complex modern agency, that's sort of. And I'm really not just doing this as a debating move. Like for me, truly, that feels a fortiori. That from the perspective of things that would push in favor or against close judicial policing of non-delegation doctrine, that all feels to me like it ought to push 
against that, I had a really interesting conversation with a colleague um, of ours here, um, a conservative colleague of ours here early on in the project when Nick and I first sort of like started saying to our colleagues, I kind of think that there was no such thing. Um, and he said, like, look, the uh, the pushback that you're going to get, or rather the pushback that I feel because he was, he was ch channeling it, is that whatever you show, it's kind of a version of what you just said, Eric. Whatever you show about the expectations around delegation at the founding, that is combined, he said, claimed, uh, with a much more limited sense of what the federal government can do in terms of yes. its subject matter yes. jurisdiction, yes. Article 1, Section 9. So when you have a, a, a government that per the New Deal, per the expansion, per the switch in time, et cetera, suddenly can regulate, um, you know, the the meat that Ollie's Barbecue or how Ollie's Barbecue serves its meat to African-American um, uh, potential customers, that is a sea change, as you have just finished saying, in the scope of the federal government's regulatory authority. And so suddenly the old understandings of what consolidation might mean, um, it's like that, but on steroids. And the interesting thing is, and then I'll shut up, it's not that, you know, these great statesmen of the past saw literally every uh, hydraulic in the system they built, but it was not lost on them that the scope of, and they often talk about it as the president's executive power, the implications of conveying the executive power were like really tightly linked with the subject matter scope of the legislative power. Why? Because what does the executive power execute? What the legislative power has done. So the more that you expand the scope, Article 1, Section 8, of the kind of enumerations of authority Congress has, they sort of recognized and discussed, um, the scarier, as it gets, gets bigger, the executive power is because it's drawing on a potential, even if at the beginning, and there's no laws that can't do anything without laws to execute, it's, it will be drawing over time on a New Deal-esque, if that's where the world goes, suite of authorities over every detail of at least economic activity. I have three comments about what you just said. It's the favorite answer I've ever heard in 31 podcasts or something. Uh, <laughs> second, second, you had me at deference. <laughs> and then, and then you, any sentence that begins, that's the argument for deference, I'm going to say yes. Um, but, but, mo but more importantly, and now I'm going to be really, that, that was joking, and now I'm serious. What you just said for us federal court, courts nerds is exactly what John Marshall said in Osborne versus Bank of the United States. He said mm -hmm. that, 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 that Congress has to be able to pass any law authorized by the Constitution. The president has to be allowed to execute any law authorized by the Constitution, and the courts have to be able to interpret any law passed, you know, uh, any law that's, that's passed by the president and Congress. Now, someone may say, yeah, but that initial law was unconstitutional. But if we're talking delegation and it went through Article 1, Section 8, then it's Section 7, then it's not unconstitutional. Um, the Osborne has a great discussion of the need for what you just said, and, and, and I think it's um, it was brilliant when Marshall said it, and it's, brilliant, and it's brilliant when you just said it, and I, and I agree with both. Um, <laughs> I'm going right. to pull that up uh, more or less as soon as we get off. Um, I, I have never read the – I mean, I've, I've read either description or squibs of it, but I've never read the opinion, and I certainly don't. That, that sounds perfect. That sounds, that sounds just, oh, you'll just like right. You'll like it, and, and that's why I said federal courts nerds. It's not a case they teach in con law. It's a case they teach, we teach in federal courts, and it's about arising under right. jurisdiction. Um, all right. I want to do one more thing on delegation then get to court reform, and then you have to go to a different meeting. I could talk to you all day. Um, on So last Thursday night, I, I came out of class at 9 o'clock after teaching for three hours, teaching Marbury for the 10,000th time. Um, I was tired, and I was planning on having a lovely evening at home with my wife and kids for an hour or so, and the Supreme Court strikes down at 9.02, I think. I don't know when it was exactly, but at some point that evening, the Supreme Court says the CDC 
during a worldwide pandemic that is shows no sign really of abating, you know, to a significant degree. The CDC has no right, or, or it wasn't, it was not a decision on the merits. But the Supreme Court did basically say the CDC cannot um, put a moratorium on evictions because of COVID, because well, we don't know really why, but mostly because the authorizing legislation it went beyond the authorizing legislation or something. Um, what are your feelings about that? I thought it was a closer case than I first thought, and it might surprise you, but I at first thought it was a relatively easy case that the administration was in the wrong, hmm. that, the, um, that the statute fairly read, um, and now we're going to, we could if we wanted to, stray into uh, <laughs> conversations like in Bostock about what it means to fairly read a statute, yeah. um, but that the statute yeah. fairly read um, should not capture regulation of local economic arrangements absent more significant evidence that it should. And that's why I first, I first, as I first started to read um, uh, reported discussions of the case and sort of like, you know, thin blog Twitter level commentary on the case, I sort of thought, you know, geez, like, I actually don't know that this, that the court's resistance to this seems so wrong to me. Right. I think probably it still is beyond what the statute ought to be read to permit. But boy, I've been convinced as I've dug further into it that it's a pretty close case. Um, and that if you look at the textual moves that have been made by some of the folks, that the statute should be narrowed down beyond what its obvious words seem to say. They kind of fall apart at the technical line dissection level from my perspective. And that what you're left with is precisely the kind of broad gestural, deep, you know, structural statutory purpose analysis, what would make sense, what would have made sense, would this have been within the contemplation of, right, the kind of like counterfactual, um, open-ended spirit of the statute reasoning that allegedly is like antithetical to what conservatives um, uh, believe in, like you can't, that it requires relying on that kind of reasoning, which I'm totally open to in a statutory context, um, to sort of conclude that the statute doesn't authorize it. I mean, it's worth just reading the, the, um, the relevant text from the statute, just to emphasize your point. It says the Surgeon General is authorized to make and enforce such regulations as in his judgment are necessary to prevent the introduction, transmission, or spread of communicable diseases. And if you just take that sentence and you read the literal words that appear in the sequence that they do, nothing in the rest of the statute requires you to read that as any narrower than what it seems to do, which is if the Surgeon General in good faith thinks that action X will reduce communication, then have at it, bud. <laughs> so, 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 so your answer surprised me a little, um, but but I but I but I hope it I, what it demonstrates is I told what you it, I don't like delegations. I, I told you, like I actually don't love delegations. Well, no, no, but, no, no. Sorry, I was going to say I, it's I a huge. It's a huge testament to you, given <laughs> your your politics, that you you know that that it's kind of like you know I get that all the time about Roe versus Wade and Casey. I'm the most pro-choice person in America, and I think I'm tied with the I'm tied as the most pro-choice person in America. I think those cases were wrong. But, but leaving that aside, here's my deal on, on this case. And I'm just curious your reaction. Given that it is a fact that cannot be debated, that liberals and conservatives on both sides take immense license with text, history, um, and precedent when policy is substantially important enough. I'm not even blaming conservatives more than liberals. It's just or liberals more than conservatives. So they all do it on the Supreme Court. In a situation where there's 
a pandemic like this and a state of emergency and landlords need their money, but tenants need their roofs um, and it's hard. What I would insist on is kind of what I insist on in all of constitutional law. This was not a con law case. We should be clear for the, for the listeners. But before the court's going to step in, I want clear error. There has to be, you know, we all agree this is ridiculous. Does this emergency justify it? To the extent it's in any way a close case, I think you just said it is closer than you thought, I want judges out of this because they're not going to be blamed when tenants spread COVID, you know, to other people on the street or die or whatever horrible things happen. Um, or, and I, I fully appreciate the stakes landlords have in this. That balancing to me should not be done by Kagan or Roberts. It should be done by the CDC or the Congress, absent clear error. And then one more thing about that. If the CDC errs, first of all, I mean, obviously the president can change that, but leaving that aside, Congress can change it. We don't need judges. Congress can do this. And by the judges doing it, it makes it more unlikely, I'm ranting, I'm sorry, that Congress will do this. So that's why I, that's why I was so um, upset by that ruling, because we're in an emergency situation. The CDC and Congress know more than Roberts and Kagan. It should be up to the CDC and Congress. That's my view on it. Is that ridiculous? It is certainly not ridiculous. Um, and I've, I really have been persuaded that there's a lot to that set of arguments. Okay. I think at some level, probably my reactions to some of this entire area of the law are shaped by my litigation background, both before and af after arriving um, in mm -hmm. academia, yeah. has been not entirely, but very often pitched against actions of the executive branch of one kind or another. In some cases, I mean, most floridly in Guantanamo, um, uh, in, uh, in some cases, based on incredibly broad readings of statutes where the literal words could be read to extend authority to enforce regulations that seem necessary to keep us safe or something like that. Yeah. And yeah. sort of stepping back from the words to the larger ecosystem of emergency statutes and use of force authorizations that you know abound in our statute books, I think, and this is not an intellectual argument, it's sort of saying, well, why do I come away you know, more skeptical than what you're describing? Because I'm on board with what you're saying about deference, and I'm on board with what you're saying about expertise. But geez, there's a lot of incentives, political and otherwise, inside the executive branch yeah. to yeah. expand its claims about what the statutes let it do endlessly. And for all my constitutional views on the inappropriateness of judges saying as a constitutional matter, this far and no further on questions like these. I'm less concerned about judges doing at least that to some extent, in part, be no, maybe entirely because of what you said at the end. Despite veto gates, despite the difficulty of passing legislation, at the end of the day, if that authority really is necessary, then um, the onus should be on Congress to extend it or something like that. And we stray so quickly into like nostrums and high-level abstractions like Congress should do it uh, rather than thinking about the, the, the particularities of the thing. But that's kind of my instinct, I think. I, I think my reaction to that is if the court were to say we're no longer policing this, absent, we all absent a, a delegation or, or an abuse by an agency that everyone in the world agrees is wrong, you know, the, the most deferent, not, not total deference, but almost total deference, then I think the political pressure goes back to where it belongs in the long run over time. And that's a good thing. And then the people we elect, we can blame. Because right now we can't blame the people. We can't. We, we, the, the 
when the court takes it over, we can't really do anything about it um, other than a very long run changing presidents and all that stuff. Um, all right, we're running out of time. Um, I'm really interested um, in this question is going to come out of the blue at you, so warning, warning. You're king of the world. Well, you're not king because anyone do this, but you, you're, you get to decide how to reform the Supreme Court, if at all. It's all up to you, your decision. You get to do it, and everyone's going to do, well, he said it, so we're doing it. How, do you reform the court? How do you reform the court? And why? In five minutes, which I know is an impossible task, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> These are complicated questions, yes. as you well know. I, know. I don't know. I mean, I, I have instincts and views, and I, I, I take this question as a mark of my own unwilling, I think it's fair to say, radicalization over the last four or five years. I, I have thought of myself as an institutionalist um, and as a moderate in a whole variety of ways. And I find myself thinking things like court expansion, court packing, whatever you want to call it, and thinking, yeah, maybe. And like, if you told me that I'd ever be thinking that 10 years ago, I just would have laughed at you. It would have seemed funny. So it is a strange feeling to be in a place where this conversation doesn't, at least to me, feel... Um, outlandish. I think it's probably hypothetical for the foreseeable future because I just don't think the Democrats uh, will get themselves to do together to do this for lots of different reasons. I think it would be nice to have a court that had a much larger membership than it does now. Yeah. I think it would be nice to have a court that unwinds what I think of as some of the devil's bargain um, uh, of placing um, traditional ideologically conservative judges on the Supreme Court at the cost of supporting somebody who I think came closer to undoing our republic than anybody since the beginning of the thing. And I yeah. think that undoing the, um, the, 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 the play, as my colleague Richard Primus likes to think about it, playground basketball faithlessness of, you know, rejecting um, Garland, but then um, uh, 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 Barrett, letting Barrett through. Um, and so undo the undue advantage gained from that. Um, partly for fairness and partly just because it would counterbalance decades of stacking the court in the direction that just simply doesn't map onto the presidential elections that we've had over that same period. Right. That's the right. first thing I'd say. I just don't think that constitutional democracy should work this way. Um, over time, I think it's I think the, the, the generation that resentments, et cetera, that it generates are really, really bad. One. Two, I think it should be a lot bigger than it is, setting aside any questions of like swamping the ill-gotten gains of the conservative ideological judicial movement. I think that we you want like a you know, 18 person court, whatever the whatever the larger number is folks are throwing around now. And I think you want most cases decided by panel. I think that, you know, doing something like the way uh, some international courts do it or some other countries constitutional courts do it. where like, you know, like a lot of the cases really don't have to be heard by all nine justices or whatever the number would be. A lot of the cases can be heard by a lot fewer justices and like the run of the mill depoliticization as it's experienced over time of a more mechanistic, not mechanistic, but a more journeyman-like approach to like, it's not the whole Supreme Court, it's this subset of the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court as a whole can review it if they don't like it. I think that that values of that would be very high, and I think that term limits. I think that we should be doing, I think we would clearly being ter be doing term limits. I think it's outrageous to have a, you know, gerontocracy on the judicial branch yeah. checking what the political branches can do. I think it's um, it's really a shame. And so I think judicial limits, uh, term limits, um, uh, we're not setting aside how one might achieve this through constitutional means, but term limits, um, much bigger court and undo the ill-gotten gains um, to regain some kind of legitimacy for a court that's just ludicrously skewed from an ideological perspective based on any plausible theory about how you get from presidential elections to like a court that's a trailing indicator, which it just totally isn't. 
Um, that was a great answer. I'm going to take a moderator's prerogative and give a couple of reflections. Um, one is I've been at this much longer than you uh, have been. I started in 91. And most law professors that teach constitutional law eventually, I find, come around to ideas like the court should be reformed, no matter what side of the equation they're on. And I attribute that to the idea that giving a lot of power to government officials for life is a really dumb idea. And that's something we can all agree on. The second thing I wanted to say is um, early in my career, um, I had a conversation with Jeff Powell at Duke. Jeff's, a, I think, a great person and a great law professor um, and was, a, was one of the most important early critics of originalism. Anyway, Jeff came to my school to give a talk. And at that moment in time, he's changed. But at that moment in time, he, in the 90s, he decided to stop teaching constitutional law which shocked me because his, his writing was so great and it was so influential on me. And I said, Jeff, why are you doing that? And he said, I can't do it in good faith anymore because I, I, can't, teach a, I can't teach a course where it's all just made up. Um, 20 years later, Christopher Sprigman at NYU would say exactly the same thing to me. <laughs> exactly the same thing to me. Um, and I just want to, um, in as non-condescending a way as possible, <laughs> say to you, I feel like you're on that path. <laughs> Like you are, you are heading down the road that 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 a lot of um, I think really smart, sensitive think and and I wonder if that's not a reason why I have no idea why Justice Souter retired so early. I, I'm not saying it's what it was, but it wouldn't surprise me if he got tired of dealing in a area of the law which has the biggest headlines, where he knows and we know it's mostly just made up stuff. That's my moderator's prerogative. I'll leave it at that. You have been awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, and it should come out in a couple of days. And it was great having this meeting you face to face like this because we've had other interactions. But this has been great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Really a pleasure of a conversation. And I'll look forward to engaging again on this and other things. I really enjoyed it. Thanks.